0: Welcome back to These Truths, a World Voices podcast exploring literature and the deeper truths that connect us. I'm Chip Raleigh, director of Penn World Voices Festival. Today, we'll explore how literature can bring us to a greater understanding of those most marginalized by society. Kate Meissner and Robbie Pollock run Penn America's prison and justice writing program, which amplifies the work of writers who are currently and formerly incarcerated. They'll introduce us to two writers who will feature in an upcoming event presented with Haymarket Books, and then Kate's will talk to poet and memoirist Reginald Dwayne Betts. First, here are Kate's and Robbie in conversation.
1: I'm Robbie Pollack. I'm the prison writing program manager at PEN America. I run the prison writing mentorships and a lot of the contests in the daily correspondence we get from writers all over the country who are incarcerated.
2: I'm Kate Meissner. I am the director of the Prison and Justice Writing Program at PEN America and also a writer and artist. The Prison Writing Program at PEN America has uh, a 40-plus year legacy starting in the early 1970s after the Attica uprising, really looking at the written word as a form of power, legitimate power. And uh, that program has revolved around three main pillars that I'll ask Robbie to share in a moment, uh, a little more in depth, but that looks like a handbook for writers in prison resource, which is a book we send to about 200 people a month who are incarcerated that book is now being revisioned and re-edited. We have a mentor program and a prison writing contest that elevates the voices of writers on the inside. And then we have a, a more recent Writing for Justice Fellowship that's completed two cycles of cohorts. Reginald Dwayne Betts, who is on the call with us and you'll hear from shortly was within that f- first cohort of fellows, and that program awards writers Real an ecosystem of writers with both lived justice experience and without, but other connections to the justice space to confront critical issues connected to mass incarceration through writing projects. Our philosophy, I'll put up right up front, is that our work is connective, not charitable. We are looking at writers in prison as being people with full, holistic talents and contributions and we are looking to be in partnership with people uh, in the way that we presence them both as contributors to the conversation on justice and beyond much more to say about that but i wanted to pause to invite robbie to talk a li- just a little bit more about our mentor program and our contest
1: yeah i think it's really cool we uh, accept o- over a thousand entries every year in poetry fiction nonfiction, and drama from writers all over the country they pour their hearts out talking about all kinds of interesting themes. Some are set in prison. Some are about love, lost family, memories, you know, all kinds of topics that we don't often consider as being prison writing. And our panel of judges, which um, Kate and I have worked very hard in the last two years to bolster both having judges who have 30 years experience working, advocating in the justice space and its intersection with literature, but also filling it with uh, fresh voices who are more diverse and increasingly in the know about issues dealing with mass incarceration so that we have a very broad spectrum and results from the contest. When we get the winners of the contest, we assign them writing mentors from all over the country. They exchange three letters about the work and often make very deep connections, and can choose to continue. For the most part, all the mentorships are life-giving. This year, we have a new award, in addition to our Prison Writing Awards, Madeline Lengel Ahmad Rahman Award for mentorship. And that's really exciting, because it celebrates uh, the sort of peer relationship that we're describing as being connective and not charitable, that Everyone has a lot to learn when we cross divides, walls, institutions, and barriers, and use art and writing as the, as the vehicle to bridge that gap. Does that work, Kate?
2: I would add that a part of our journey is also really shifting this, this powerful and long standing program to also be a little more flexible. I'll just share briefly that last year we engaged a National Novel Writing Month pilot as a way to think about how we also engage mentorship with people on the inside as mentors, not just mentees. So we had four peer facilitators in their facilities working with groups they gathered to write a novel in a month with our support. And we did uh, a lot of posting and sharing of their journey and inviting comments back that we shared from the public. That was one step of, of more that we're considering about how to make mentorship truly multidirectional, not just in philosophy, but in action. So that's what we're looking towards uh, this year.
1: Actually, it's really weird because when we pivoted to remote work, I think all of us were afraid about the future of our work, about how it makes sense with the pandemic raging through prisons and people being put at serious risk. And Kate came back to me with the idea of temperature check using our existing works of justice blog, but specifically creating a, um, a rapid response series.
2: Well, obviously you're, you're deeply involved in this. The works of justice blog was in fact, your idea, something that we created Together as a way to uplift the the content that we were already doing, so the live events would then be on a podcast stream. And we were pretty amazed after you launched that about the organic engagement we were getting with zero promotion. In in many ways, the space you set up (laughs) opened the door to this. It just is leaning on our pillars of the program, right? Part of our work is in amplifying and centering the voices of directly impacted people. So, temperature check consists of what we call a dispatch or original creative reporting from people on the inside. We've had uh, short prose, we've had poems, we've had graphic narratives. We we called on them and invited them and paid them to, to talk about their experience. And we got some pretty incredible stuff back. And the podcast is often with somebody who's working in the field. So in policy, who's working in grassroots organizing, who's direct support to people coming home from prison during covid I mean, and then we also wanted it right to be uh, a roundup. We were getting emails. So we're often responsive to need we see as a team. And we were getting emails from people in our community saying, what can I do? I'm seeing this. And so we, we took it uh, upon ourselves as a call to action to start rounding up other advocacy efforts people could be involved in. So thank you for giving me a chance to, to share a little bit about that. Robbie, I'm really excited to share with the world this podcast experience that we've put together. The podcast is works read by people standing in for writers in prison, pulled from our prison writing archives over the years and the really exceptional works. And you have taken all of these contributions and expertly woven them together into uh, a complete And holistic listening experience that is quite moving. And we are launching that on June 11th at 5 p.m. with a live listening session in partnership with Haymarket Books. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about some of your creative choices in putting that together.
1: Well, we do a lot of live events of incarcerated people's writing, and the events all have a certain shape so like usually very little music you know sit down and people read producing live events in the digital space i think we're aware of creating as rich a tapestry of art from directly impacted people as possible and i can't overstate the value of our curators who picked the work um and found amazing work that's in conversation with each other And also my dear friend, Kenyatta Hughes, who provided music for the episode, some songs that have never been heard by the world, and recorded in a pandemic environment in his apartment in the largest projects in New York City. You can get used to
3: anything After a while While the world
1: melts down around him, he's recording these songs of love, and we're weaving it into... Narratives of, of pain and loss and, and life behind the walls.
4: Some dreams they snap, some dreams die.
1: do you have thoughts about the specific pieces and how they were chosen and what they add?
2: We have pieces that talk about people giving birth in prison, a diary written from a mother to their baby. We have uh, a piece. About loss, which feels incredibly relevant in this moment. A piece that Nicole Shawan Jr. reads with, with such a profound power and necessary anger.
4: Hello, my name is Nicole Shawan Jr. I am grateful to give voice to the literary art created by another woman writer who happens to be incarcerated. I am honored to read this poem about women like the ones who raised me. Women like the ones I love most. Prison Eulogies by Yvette M. Lewisell. The ones who died never mattered much except in here where the stories never end because they're too real. Michelle, who beat her girl until she got out and got her own self killed. Stella, who laughed and laughed until that last hit hit her vein. Woda thought a pulled tooth would make Kim bleed to death, or that Pat's heart was really that bad. They don't make announcements here, but we always know. And every time I can't kneel down for months after, my mouth won't move the way it should. It's not me. It's never me. It's always me.
2: We have poems that talk about relationships with mothers, with friends, with the world, with finding peace and grace among horror and terror and madness. We have a play that talks about racial dynamics in prison. The pieces are not a monolith by any means and show the range of storytelling that happens behind the walls. I think you touched on it, Robbie, there's a kind of a false idea that either Everybody in prison is only writing about prison, which is not true. And, or there's a feeling of surprise when people hear the work. And it's often from people who are even maybe a little politicized to say, I can't believe that came out of prison. And I think that's part of why we do this work is to show these ingrained biases and stereotypes and exposes the way that our biases are really present and they get pulled out in that moment and we're able to look at them.
1: The people we hear these recordings are like real people with. Real problems, it's a gift to the listener, the sacrifice made for people to present other people's voices, but also to share their own pain through the work.
2: I think we're also uplifting and showing excellence, which just gives a sense of the holistic humanity that we're not privy to or is not invited into our worlds hardly ever. The poem you're about to hear is written by inaugural Writing for Justice fellow Justin Ruvios Monson, a favorite poet of mine, sharing a coming-of-age story of, quote, two boys, different shades of brown, unquote, and the tenderness between them before the world became complex.
3: This is Casey Gerald, reading Notes for If I Fade Away, Brownout O3 by Justin Rovios Monson. This is to remind you that I loved you way back. You, with your sleepless rivers and strings of power lines, titans gathered into formations of tender flesh and luminous pleasures. You are always moving, longing, we say, because desire is full of endless distances. An apartment building, two boys, different shades of brown. Son above, acting as father. Prayer is two fists arcing. Brown boy with good hair, choked by the parentheses of his shoulders. Broken horse. Please don't mistake these notes for elegies. These are the breaks. The summer where I learned of hunger and the absence of pain. Bridgewater that slag-heap hoopty moored in our oak-ridden suburbs, glimmers of future lives, sashaball, Dixie, maybe, loose change for 75-cent conies, the big homies pushing bags behind the skate park, all the white paint peeling off the divider wall, the chain-link fence we tore back between our cracked pavement and the fairway, the brownout that melted five days, how I dipped my feather light body in the tub to keep cool, the water searching me like so many soft lights. The general mind was hollow back then, and I did as I do now, sketched your patterns into the margins of my ribs. This was before Meet Me at the Corner Wash or Your Turn to Go to the Marathon became slang for the lies we believed. Before the 3 a.m. street lights, the palms crowded with earth tones. Before I learned logic and before we should have read Hamlet, Lord, we know who we are, yet we know not what we may be. Where I learned to be in the middle of bright islands and dime bags, those whisper field trees, the pavement begging to kiss my knees. (laughs)
0: Next, Kate Meissner will speak with Reginald Duane Betts. He's the author of four books, his latest, a poetry collection called Felon. Betts recently received his JD from the Yale Law School.
2: Welcome, Duane. You are a poet, you're a lawyer. You were a 2018, 2019 writing for Justice fellow. Of course, I have to shout that out. And you also have lived experience in uh, the system. So before we go into the moment uh, of time we're in right now, and and some of the questions that I have for you around that, I want to talk a little bit about your own journey. You have a memoir, A Question of Freedom, a memoir of learning, survival, and coming of age in prison, and people should certainly read that to hear your full story. But I was wondering if you could contextualize where you come to this conversation at the intersection of literature and justice.
5: Yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Because I, I, I was educated in a way that was fundamentally different from how most people get their education. Some type of understanding about the world comes from, you know, going to K through 12 and then going to undergrad and then maybe going to grad school. But um, getting locked up so early meant that first I finished high school in a jail cell. Having to direct my own education and then going to prison in a place where there was no programming. I constantly had to make decisions about what I wanted to read and, and, and a lot of it was sort of haphazard and whimsical. But what I naturally gravitated towards was really this idea that most stories are in some way about trying to understand the human condition. And and many other stories were about trying to understand it through a lens of justice. And so, you know, I remember reading the jungle. For the first time, I remember reading Mice and Men for the first time. I remember reading A Lesson Before Dying for the first time and, and, and getting all of this sort of knowledge about the world and knowledge about what justice might look like and what the failure to achieve justice looks like, you know, through books. And so how I came to this moment, thinking about this intersection between literature and justice, is just that my diet of literature has always been sort of consumed with the backdrop of prison. And and that meant that my understanding of what the written word can do and maybe even what the written word should do has always been somehow viscerally related to uh, pursuing justice.
2: Mm, Thank you. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about the work of our program and why it's important to really center the voices of of justice-involved writers, particularly where we work primarily with currently incarcerated writers. I want to hear if, if you think that's important and also why why that might be necessary at this moment in time.
5: Oh, man, I don't even know what a justice involved really is. You know, we draw lines and we think that the lines are convenient because they help us understand where people are situated better. But I think like far too often, man, when we start drawing lines that, that become generalizations, those lines are used just as much to oppress us. I mean, I, I struggle with it. You know, I, I don't have any unique desire to hear from justice-involved writers. Matt Ruff is white, and he wrote Lovecraft Country. He wrote a book that centers black characters, that centers a struggle against white supremacy. And he white. I'm not certain that there's any demand for justice-involved writers as much as it's a demand for excellent writers who care about these issues, who are willing to explore these issues and are willing to do it in a way that is not that tactic. You know, I'm just dope. I mean, I like to think I'm dope, but I like to think that I'm not dope because I'm a justice involved writer. And in fact, sometimes I feel like if I push a term like that, I'm doing the same thing that the person did when they told a friend of mine that I only get the accolades I get because I've been in prison. So I just think it's, it's, it's a real danger in all of these ways in which we imagine that proximity necessitates a value that is beyond proximity. You know, if you proximate to the fire, it just means that you're being burned. It doesn't necessarily mean that your proximity makes you understand that water is a better decision than oil. And I should say that when I speak about proximity, I'm thinking really specifically about a lot of contemporary thinkers around incarceration, maybe most specifically uh, Glenn Martin and Brian Stevenson. And I'm not suggesting that I disagree with them. I'm suggesting that sometimes we turn the truth in their statements into something that 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 maybe becomes reductive, because you know, definitely Martin, as somebody who did time and trained and worked with others to train himself to be thoughtful and a leader and able to negotiate. With stakeholders and lead initiatives, and Brian Stevenson is somebody who has been trained to be an attorney and has done this work for decades, it is right. not just their proximity to the problem that that is what makes them who they are. And I feel like sometimes when we say things like, is it important to hear from justice involved writers?" We, we are suggesting that it's, it's just the proximity that makes their voices valuable when in fact, those who do have voices that are valuable, like Randall Horton, like Vivian Nixon, like Mitchell Jackson, it is a product uh, of the same kind of thing that make Jasmine Ward's voice valuable. You know, and, and what that is, is a combination of intellect, insight, and a willingness to go to that. I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of on a tangent, but I'm on a tangent because I'm a damn contrarian.
2: Well, I'll bring it back because I actually think it's incredibly relevant what you say. You're always attempting to walk towards a world where that label becomes eradicated because there really is no such thing as prison writing as a genre. But we're not there yet in the world. It's hard to escape the need to still frame it. So with that said, this also speaks to the experience of people who are coming home and the way that these labels tag and follow you. And your collection of poetry, Felon, which our fellowship gave you just a little fun to work on, and it's an unbelievable book, and it really talks about the aftermath of, of incarceration. So I would love to ask you about your intentions and your hopes in writing this book, and also to hear a piece from it.
5: The way I think about Felon, I think I'm trying to raise some of the questions I find important and necessary, and I'm trying to deal more in story and deal in the ways in which we could all imagine ourselves occupying some of these spaces. And that's one of the reasons why I sort of push back against the justice involved piece is because, you know, if I want you to be able to embody some of these characters that come up in these poems, if I want you to be able to embody these experiences, then I got to believe that there's something porous about them and that, and that there are these strict lines of demarcation. I, I don't want people to um come to the work and feel like they are witnessing the other. I want them to be able to dig into the work and see reflections of themselves, you know. Going back. If I return, it'll start with a pistol. The dark amassed that never hides enough. I'll pour the last of my drink down so fast I'll choke and cough. If I return, the past that I pretend defines me will not explain the old feeling of cuffs that capture my hand's ambition. A sheriff's car will take me down I-95 and I'll tell myself the first time I went down south was to go to prison. All of my legacy will be in my head, rattling around in that four-door sedan with the fucked-up suspension. I'll ride through my memories, will feel time constraining my dreams. Returning will take me through would have felt like an entire state filled with cities named after prisons. My birthdays of yesterdays will become the water that my head struggles to break through, and my sons may forget my name. And if I dared mourn and say a prayer, but nah, I wouldn't mourn or say any prayers.
2: Mm. Thank you. The entire book and collection is just as powerful as that piece. To stay just for a moment on you as an artist, I touched on it a little bit earlier about who's writing and their proximity. And there's a lot of dialogue in the world about who gets to write what. And of course, that's hooked to a history and whose voices are elevated and who has ownership over their own story. So it's not a simple question or answer. But I'm thinking a lot about one of my guiding poets is the poet A.I., who wrote in persona a great deal. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is that your poems, there may be an assumption on the behalf of the reader when they read a poem that the eye is always the, the author. So I'm curious in these moments when there's a boiling point with issues that have been issues for years, but now we're really in a groundswell moment, writers are asking these kind of questions, particularly poets. How and when do I get to enter a voice and what does it look like to write about issues of the day if my proximity is not, as you say, right next to the fire. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that.
5: Yeah, I I is a favorite, actually. Her poem, Riot Act, is is amazing and it's a a good thing for us to be reading and thinking about right now. But I, I would say, I'm not sure if that's even true. First of all, it's art, right? And so the idea that even if the poem I write is me, the idea that that tells you anything about me is a kind of absurdity because the poem is just a moment and I am always going to be more than than was in that moment. And so even if that moment is absolutely true, that doesn't mean that there are other things that are true that precede or follow that moment that would change the way you think about me as a person. So I think the poem should be evaluated based on how it functions as art, not how it functions as identity. And, And I think that's true of memoir too. Just because your mother Teresa doesn't mean the memoir you write will be quality art. It it doesn't mean that it'll be meaningful art. And there's some ways in which the way you behave in a world might so exceed the bounds of mores and norms that what you produce, no matter how artful, is irrelevant, is is worthy of being dismissed and not engaged with. But that's a different standard that that frequently we we don't reach. When we think about people's work, right? And in terms of my own thing, you know, people thinking that I and I in the poems—it's because if you're focusing on imagining that you read my bio when you hear me um, read a poem or when you read a poem that I wrote, it's just because you're missing something. And frankly, I lie all the time in poetry because there are things that I need to say that are true about the world that aren't true about my life. And, and I'm trying to start conversations, and I'm trying to grapple with the uh, rippling effects of incarceration in a way that it follows you and it plagues you in ways that come out in my work, but for it to come out honestly, it cannot match the actual details of my life. I just think it's sort of trite to imagine that because you read my poem, you read my biography. I ain't even got engaged with it because that shit is just lame as fuck to me, so... If 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 you think that that's the measure of a poem, you got to be a fool. You don't have to be a fool, but I think it's foolish because when I dive my poetry latch, like, do we actually read Robert Hayden and say, man, I wonder what this tells us about Robert Hayden? Or do we read Shakespeare's, all of those sonnets where he's writing the first person? Do we actually think that that reveals something about the man that is valuable to discuss and engage with? And, and I don't know. It's just like the price of being alive is that we want to understand people better We want to understand strangers better. We want to turn them into not just in a celebrity, but something tangible that we imagine that we have some type of grasp on. Maybe we do get a grasp on people's intellect and humanity and vision through the words that they write. But I don't think that we get a grasp on who they are to their mothers and fathers and children, who they are to their lovers, who they are to the people who they engage with in the grocery store. And, and, you know, with our friends and people we care about, that's what matters most, right? is like who they are on that level. And I don't think that's what art gives us. Art gives us something else um, that we don't necessarily require from our friends, right? We don't go to them to be the oracle for helping us understand what's going on from day to day. That's the role and the function of the artist. And I think the artist is trying to do a little bit of all of those things that, you know, the teacher, the therapist, the priest, the wino in the corner you know, trying to do a little bit of what all of those folks do for us.
2: I think that's such an important distinction, and it's really profound, your framing, and we won't go down this rabbit hole, but I always wonder the role social media has played in, in also casting and characterizing the artist as also a sort of brand of sorts. It's just, it's a confusing time, so to hear your thoughts is quite clear, and I appreciate that. Um Normally, this podcast closes with a prompt from filmmaker Werner Herzog. The quote is, the deeper truth is an invented one. But our team provided me with an alternative quote today from Ida B. Wells, considering the moment in time we're in. She said, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. There's a million routes into that from the work that we do in the prison and justice writing department. But in thinking about the turning the light of truth onto wrongs to right them, that huge, big statement How might we apply that in this current moment? And and to be explicit, I'm talking about uh, the uprisings in response to the systemic and systematic murder of Black people in America. And I'm also talking about that in relationship to the police as one of many entry points to a much larger system of racial injustice that is much more expansive than also this current moment.
5: I think I struggle with it in the sense that it's always piecemeal. You know, in a sense that the the poems and the stories and the art is is always trying to address moments that we can stitch into a way to address everything. For me, art makes me step back and and not necessarily imagine that any one moment is even pretending to be about everything. You know, I do fundamentally believe that the protest that's going on right now are about far more than just the murder. George Floyd. And I get that. But I also believe that it's actually just about that. It's about, you know, the scroll that broke the camera's back, which the secret, the million other scrolls that's underneath it, to quote most deaths. And if I just stop and focus a little bit and and I'm forced to think about this the strange, strange reality that that mass incarceration, the coronavirus and this murder give us. Police were engaging with somebody, breaking the rules of social distancing for allegedly the passing of a fake $20 bill. I mean, people die from the coronavirus. And that's the first thing. I just want to stop and just think about this, that we live in a society in which they would risk getting the coronavirus for something that is that insignificant. And then they would risk handcuffing, arresting him, And putting him in contact with more people as they processed him through the system. They would risk taking him into a jail where he might be exposed to something. They risk already exposing him by their contact with him. All for like nothing, right? And I'm struck by the fact that if if he had just gotten arrested. And then say he had two strikes and it was a city, state, locale that. Was enforcing a third, three strikes law. And he gets life in prison for this fake $20 bill. Like nobody at all cares. We're not marching, right? And so it's a way in which, if I, as an artist, hold on to just George Floyd and think seriously about everything that's implicated in all that happened, I think, you know, a lot of stuff gets revealed. Like why Breonna Taylor doesn't come up in a way that she should. You think about like why we were having a lot of these same conversations with Freddie Gray, Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, why are we having the same conversations? And the truth is like like you could run the names down and, and the names for me are markers for the weight that a kind of state violence carries. You know, they aren't markers for like Dwayne, do you fear for the life of your son? No, that's that's not what's happening. I fear for the sanctity of this democracy. You know what I mean? I fear for the ability for us to go on as a nation because we haven't been able to figure out some fundamental thing that should be true, which is you should not be murdered during an arrest, period. You should definitely not be murdered during an arrest for some shit, you should never be locked up for in the first place. It's interesting because I don't, I don't really know how art speaks to any of that. Except I think, for me, art is the thing that like really, really, really forces me to slow it all down, to to try to peel back the layers, to try to get at something that frankly ain't gonna be revelatory at all. But it's gonna be the kind of thing that somebody's grandmother's saying in the house after something like this happened. And sometimes the goal of artists is so get out of the way. That is able to reveal something that everybody knows.
0: To learn more about the crucial work of the Prison and Justice Writing Program, visit our website pen.org/worldvoicesdigital. There you'll find links to the works and artists from this episode, and information on the program's collaboration with Haymarket Books. You can also learn more about all of the offerings from our digital festival by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Penn World Voices. Next time on These Truths, novelist Ishmael Bea and New Yorker writer Alexis Okeowo discuss how fiction can help us navigate some of the most unrelenting humanitarian crises of our age. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. These Truths is a production of Penn World Voices Festival. Nancy Vitale produced and edited the series. Nicole Gervasio and Jared Jackson provided editorial assistance. Special thanks to Emily Fullen and Kenyatta Emanuel, whose music you heard throughout this episode. I'm Chip Raleigh. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay safe.